chapter 49. This is another servant passage. Hear me, O isles, listen, you distant peoples. Very similar to chapter 48, verse 16. Come near me and hear this. I have not made predictions in secret. Do you see the shift here from the Lord speaking about his servant to the servant beginning to speak up more? And he's beginning to assert himself or assert his mission that the Lord has commissioned him with. Chapter 42 is a servant passage, but it begins with the Lord speaking about his servant. This is a servant passage very similar to chapter 42, but here the servant himself is speaking. Hear me, O Isles, listen, you distant people, because the Lord has commissioned him to all of the nations of the world. Chapter 42 says, Him I have endowed with my spirit, he will dispense justice to the nations. He's to bring about justice in the earth. Chapter 42, verse 4. He's uh, created and appointed to be a covenant for the people, a light to the nations. Chapter 42, verse 6. The ends of the earth are involved there. He's commissioned to the United Nations even. We saw in chapter 43, verse 9. So, the Lord called me before I was in the belly. Before I was in my mother's womb, he mentioned me by name. Very similar to what Jeremiah says. Because everything in Isaiah has some type of precedent in the past. Jeremiah was called from before the womb, before the belly, for his particular mission, which was to uproot and to plant, to uproot the present system and to plant a new one in its place. And in Jeremiah's day, what happened? There was a day of judgment and the wicked of Israel were destroyed and taken captive. The mentioning by name is also a choosing or a covenantal calling. And the servant is called by name in other places as well. He's grasped by the right hand in chapter 45, verse 1, and he's called by name in chapter 45, verse 4. He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He's made me into a polished arrow. In his quiver he kept me secret. Implying that for a time, this person is kind of unknown. He's hidden. Remember when the Lord says, things go along and suddenly he acts? And this is one of the things that he does suddenly, is the mission of the Lord's servant. Perhaps because if everything was known about him, the forces of evil would have destroyed him or tried to destroy him. He's called a polished arrow. An arrow is a destructive weapon that, in this case, is going to be used against who? The Babylonians, right? His arm shall be against the Chaldeans, it says in chapter 48, verse 14. And there we have the metaphor is mouth, sword, and hand also. He's made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He is the Lord's mouth on one level in the book of Isaiah. That's a metaphor describing him. He's also a sword that destroys the wicked. The king of Assyria is also a sword. He's also the fire. We saw that. He's also the Lord's hand. That's on one level. And yet you can read it literally as making his mouth a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand hiding. Depends on which level you read that. If you want to read it as metaphors, you can read it like that. If you want to read it as literal, you can read it like that. He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now he calls him Israel. And yet there is the corporate servant Israel. Because in verse 6 it says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore those preserved of Israel. 
the servant's mission is to Jacob or Israel to bring them up from that level of the spiritual ladder to the Zion level. So then why does he call him Israel here? Is he talking about the corporate servant or the individual servant? Is he talking about the nation as a whole of Israel or of this individual servant? Well, all the way through here in these verses, talking about the individual servant. So he's calling him Israel because he personifies his people. Who was called Israel to begin with? Jacob. And when was Jacob called Israel? Right from the beginning? No. He was called Israel when he passed his test of loyalty and he was given a new name and he rose to a higher level. And so that implies that the servant at some point passes his test of loyalty and is given a new name. And that name, in this case, represents all of Israel or the corporate entity Israel. He personifies them in his person. And that's a very prophetic idea in the Old Testament. It's a very common idea that the individual goes through the motions that the corporate entity does. What he does, they do. So it's another way of saying that he's their exemplar. You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Well, whoever fulfills a mission on behalf of the Lord in serving God glorifies God, right? And the corporate Israel can do that too, and that's why he gives Israel his glory, as it said in chapter 46. He gives them his glory when they glorify God. They glorify him, and then he sheds his glory upon them in the sight of the nations. Verse 4. What was the servant's test? I had thought I have labored in vain, I spent my strength for nothing and to no purpose. Yet my cause rested with the Lord, my recompense with my God. His test was that he, he wasn't getting anywhere, and it required a real act of faith to continue. The Lord commissioned him, called him, and he started laboring and serving the Lord, but it just didn't come to anything. He spent his whole strength, just like King Hezekiah was cut off in the prime of life. It's that kind of scenario where he just spends his energies until he doesn't have any more, and he's not getting the support that he was looking for. Where's the parallel in that? Where's the type of that in the past? Moses, right? Moses in Egypt. What did they say to Moses in the beginning? Who are you? What do you think you can do? He met with opposition when he started to work among the slaves in Egypt, tried to deliver them. He says, my cause rested with the Lord, my recompense with my God. He left that part of it up to the Lord, the success. The Lord said just a minute ago that he would prosper his way, right? I myself have spoken it and also called him, and I've brought him and I will prosper his way. So he has to trust in that, that the Lord at some point will prosper his way, even though it doesn't have a good beginning. In fact, in chapter 52, he's marred. He meets with opposition to such an extent that people mar him, try to destroy him. Verse 5, For now the Lord has said, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to restore Jacob to him, Israel having been gathered to him, for I won honor in the eyes of the Lord when my God became my strength. So here we have the transition from the weak state to the empowered state. We have a reversal of circumstances that happens for the servant as it later on will happen for the Lord's people they experience a reversal of circumstances from a state of weakness or bondage 
to sitting on their thrones, to an exalted state as his servants. Everyone experiences a reversal of circumstances in the end of days. Babylon experiences a reversal of circumstances. She's exalted now, she's in power, she has all authority, and she becomes a non-entity. It starts off with a servant. He labors in vain, or he thinks, feels like he's laboring in vain. He spends all his strength for nothing. He himself has to keep reminding himself that the Lord did call him from the womb to be his servant, to restore Jacob. What does it mean to restore Jacob? It means to restore them from their scattered and captive state out in exile in the world at large, to bring them back to Zion in an exodus from the four directions of the earth, as we saw in chapter 11, to reconstitute them as the people of God, to renew the covenant of God with them, as Moses did in the wilderness. That's restoring Jacob. To restore Jacob to the promised land, to lead them in a wandering through the wilderness to the promised land and there to give them lands of inheritance. That's all part of the restoration of Jacob. And it is the Jacob-Israel level that he's called to, the lesser level of the Lord's people. Those who are his covenant people, but who are not yet observing the covenant, the laws of the covenant. Before there can be a physical restoration, there has to be a spiritual conversion, correct? They can't inherit the promised land without keeping the law of the covenant. It has to proceed. They have to merit that. That physical inheritance has to come on the heels of covenant keeping. It has to come as a covenant blessing. So he has a big job ahead of him. He has to convert all these people to the God of Israel from an idolatrous state, from a scattered and peeled condition, in far-flung places, the isles of the sea, the nations of the world at large, he has to convert them to the God of Israel, renew the covenant with them, to qualify them for physical blessings, such as coming in the Exodus and inheriting the Promised Land. What a job. No wonder he's not getting anywhere. Yet that's his mission. His test is that he's not getting anywhere, and he could give up, couldn't he? But instead of that, he's faithful and serves the Lord with unweariness, even though his strength seems to him like it's all been spent. Israel having been gathered to him. Now that's an interesting phrase, because the King James Version says, Israel shall not be gathered. But the Hebrew word lo, which means not, is the same word as to him, lo. It sounds the same. Israel having been gathered to him already, by the time he comes along, there has been a gathering of Israel. There has been a pre-gathering, you might say. For I won honor in the eyes of the Lord when my God became my strength. Instead of relying on his own strength, he overcame that idea and made his God his strength. He made God his head. He let God lead him. My covenant God, my God, is a covenant relationship that he has with his God. And at a certain point, God, when he passed the test, empowered him. And that empowerment changes everything around. From then on, he becomes like Moses, who had power over the elements. He had power to put down armies, to bring plagues, to bring water out of the earth. That power no nations of the world could withstand. Once a man is endowed with that kind of power, then God can prosper him. It is through that power that God prospers him. So we see how he goes from a stage where he's not prospered, where things don't go well for him, to one where he is prospered and he is empowered. 
where God's purposes will be fulfilled in him, in his servant. As it says in chapter 46, I speak and my purposes take effect. I will accomplish all my will. I summon a bird of prey from the east. From a distant land, the man who performs my counsel, what I have spoken I bring to pass, what I have planned I do. I have brought near my righteousness, and so forth. Verse 6. So at the time he empowers him, he gives him an additional mission, or a complementary mission, connection with the gathering of Israel or Jacob. He said, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore those preserved of Israel. I will also appoint you to be a light to the nations, that my salvation may be to the end of the earth. So not only those who are born of the covenant lineages, but also anybody can come. His mission is to anybody. The nations of the goyim, uh, the Gentiles, same word. I will appoint him to be a light to the Gentiles, that my salvation may be to the end of the earth. The Lord's salvation is himself. He personifies salvation. And he's going to come to the earth to save his people at a critical time. And he's going to come and rule among them in that great millennium of peace that is to come. And who will be included in that? Anybody may. If they're not literal lineages, they can be adopted into the lineages. By now, anyway, the lineages of Israel have scattered far and wide. There are those who have been able to maintain their ethnic integrity as Israelites among the nations, such as the Jews, and there are also those who who are mingled lineages of Israel. We don't know that they're of the house of Israel anymore. By now, the lineages of Israel are out there mingled and diluted, and so there's justification even for his mission to the ends of the earth because they might still be of Israel even though they're known as Gentiles. He's appointed as a light to the nations. He is the light. It's a metaphor like the other metaphors we've been seeing. And the light is a light that lights up the darkness. As we see in chapter um, 50, verse 10, Who among you fears the Lord and heeds the voice of his servant, though he walk in darkness and have no light, trust in the name of the Lord and relies on his God? The servant comes to light up the darkness of the wicked. We saw that also in chapter 9, I think it was. In the ancient Near East, kings were called the light of their people. People walking in darkness have seen a bright light, chapter 9, verse 2. On the inhabitants of the land of the shadow of death has the light dawned. And so he comes to those who are in the inhabitants of the land of the shadow of death, or people who are in darkness. That's the whole purpose. He's to convert people and bring them out of darkness into the light, the light of truth, the light of God, the light of his covenant. That my salvation may be to the end of the earth, that it may be universal. The Lord wants to include everybody in that salvation, not exclude any person because he's not a respecter of persons. If they will keep the conditions of the blessing of salvation, they may come in and partake. Verse 7, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised as a person, who is abhorred by his nation, a servant to those in authority. This was his trial, this was his test, the servant's test. He was despised. He was abhorred by his own people. Just like Christ was. But this person's mission is different. It's like that of Christ. Christ is his exemplar. The Lord is his paradigm. And what he goes through, all those who follow that paradigm have to go through. 
It's part of the way things are. In Isaiah, there's always humiliation before exaltation. There's always suffering before salvation. The trial before the blessing. A mere servant to those in authority. On the lower echelon, nobody in particular, not somebody in a position of authority himself, seemingly. Rulers shall rise up when they see you. Heads of state shall prostrate themselves because the Lord keeps faith with you because the Holy One of Israel has chosen you. What a reversal of circumstances that is. For one who's abhorred and despised and just looked down upon, now people worship him. They bow down, they prostrate themselves. In Hebrew, that's worship. And why would people do that? The person who has that kind of power, as Moses had, if somebody came along today with that kind of power over armies like those of Pharaoh, over the elements, even over animals and insects, over the sea, over waters, and over the earth, then people who are not familiar with that kind of thing would think he was some kind of God, wouldn't they? Because the Lord keeps faith with you. The Lord keeps faith with you because you've kept faith with the Lord. When things look bleak, remain faithful. Fulfill the word of God and his commandments. Because the Holy One of Israel has chosen you. He was called first, The Lord called me before I was in the belly, verse 1. Now he's chosen. The covenant has been confirmed with him. Now he's endowed with power permanently. He's not going to take that away, as he did not take it away from Moses either. I have created you and appointed you to be a covenant of the people to restore the land and reapportion the desolate estates. This is kind of a development on chapter 42. Chapter 42 also mentions that he was appointed as a covenant of the people. There it says, I have created you and appointed you to be a covenant for the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to free captives from confinement, from prison those who sit in darkness. That's part of his mission. He's empowered for a redemptive purpose, not for his own self-aggrandizement, but to deliver God's people to convert them, to bring them in the exodus, to the wandering in the wilderness, to the promised land, and when they get there, then what do they do? Then he's to restore the land and reapportion the desolate estates. Well, when did the estates become desolate? They become desolate when the king of Assyria destroys them. While the servant is performing his mission, the king of Assyria is also doing his thing of world conquest, destroying almost the whole world destroying Babylon, a worldwide entity. And when that destruction is all over, and the king of Assyria has served his purpose, or the king of Babylon, same person, then the Lord makes an end of that king. And what's left is a destroyed world. And that is what the servant portions out to the elect, or to the people of Zion. Well, that's not very nice to get a destroyed world for an inheritance, is it? It is when the whole world assumes a higher vibration and trees and flowers and vegetables and herbs and everything grows spontaneously, isn't it? It'll all change. I wouldn't mind inheriting the desolate estates in that sense, in that case, and rebuilding there, according to the divine architecture of that time period, houses and estates. And that is what Joshua did when Israel came into the Promised Land, right? They came out of bondage in Egypt, signs and wonders, 
in an exodus through the sea. Pharaoh's armies were destroyed. The plagues came upon the Egyptians. They renewed the covenant in the Sinai wilderness, wandered through the wilderness to the promised land, and there they disinherited the nations who were there, the Canaanites. In the conquest, some of those places were destroyed. And that is the scenario that the covenant people in the last days go through. The same scenario. They're in some kind of bondage, they're in some kind of darkness, they're converted, they come in an exodus, the wicked are destroyed, plagues come upon Babylon, they come in an exodus, all the while being instructed in renewing the covenant, inherit the promised land as a covenant blessing, as a permanent inheritance, all through the millennium. Those inheritances were not to be sold anciently. They remained in families and in clans. Verse 9, to say to the captives, come forth, and to those in darkness, show yourselves. Because those are the ones who are going to inherit the desolate estates. His mission, again, is to the captives, as it was in chapter 42. The captives of Israel. From a state of captivity to one of permanent inheritances that are completely free. They shall feed along the way and find pasture in all barren heights. That is the wandering in the wilderness again. They're like a flock of sheep led along by the shepherd, as in chapter 63 that I mentioned, led by Moses. They shall not hunger or thirst, verse 10, nor be smitten by oppressive heat or by the sun, as they did not in the wilderness. When they needed to drink, Moses brought water out of the rock. When they were hungry, he brought the quail or the manna. To hunger or thirst would be a covenant curse, and they are a blessed people. The Lord provides for them. They will be smitten by oppressive heat or by the sun. Because the wicked are being smitten by oppressive heat, the fire that destroys them, Isaiah likens that to fire that actually burns them up. Because his cloud of glory will cover them over and will protect them from the sun and from all the elements. As we saw in chapter 4, it says... The Lord will form a cloud by day and a mist glowing with fire by night. Above all that is glorious shall be a canopy. It shall be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day, a secret refuge from the downpour and from rain. Verse 10 again. He who has mercy on them will guide them. He will lead them by springs of water. And the water idea is all through these passages as we've seen because people are disbelieving perhaps that there's going to be water out there when they wander through that arid waste. And he keeps reassuring us of the fact that there will be water. They will be guided. Who guides them? All the Lord's servant guides them, as Moses guided them. Like a shepherd, he pastures his flock. The lambs he gathers up with his arm and carries in his bosom. The ewes that give milk, he leads gently along. In chapter 40, verse 11, verse 10 says, His arm presides for him, the arm being the Lord. The guiding is a reference to the Exodus specifically in the wandering in the wilderness. It's a word link. Then his people recall the days of Moses. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put into him his Holy Spirit, who made his glorious arm proceed at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them, making an everlasting name for himself, and he led them through the deep? Like the horse of the desert, they stumbled not, like cattle descending the slopes of ravines. It was the Spirit of the Lord that guided them. Thou didst lead thy people, O Lord, acquiring illustrious renown. Chapter 63, verses 11 through 14. All my mountain ranges, 49, 11. All my mountain ranges I will appoint as roads. My highway shall be on high. 
We can see the kinds of terrain that they come through. They come through the desert, where they're protected, and they also come over mountain ranges. And they will serve as roads. So where you have mountain ranges, expect them to be coming along through the tops of those mountains. My highway shall be on high. This idea of the highway we saw in chapter 35, which was called the way of holiness. It was the way of return. It was the way by which the redeemed would walk, would pass, coming singing to Zion, their heads crowned with everlasting joy. Chapter 35, verses 9 and 10. The highway is also the route back from captivity in chapter 9. At the last, he will exalt the sea route by Jordan and Galilee of the nations. And the people walking in darkness have seen a bright light. They come back along the way that took them into exile. They'll come back from captivity to Zion. Verse 12, See these coming from afar, these from the northwest, and these from the land of Sinim. We see again that it's from all over the world. We've seen four directions, north, south, east, and west, in chapter 11 and other places. The land of Sinim is the Orient. Sinim is generally associated with China, but it can refer to the Orient in general. So just as the servant comes from afar, he comes from afar like Abraham came from afar. The Lord has brought near his righteousness. They were far from righteousness. The servant comes from the east, from a land that is distant, a distant land, a man who performs the Lord's counsel. Just as he comes from afar, so these come from afar. They do what he does. He's their paradigm in everything. If you were to take all the things that the servant does all the way through the book of Isaiah, you'll see that the righteous of Israel, or those who become the people of Zion, do all the same things. Almost everything that he does, they do. As they begin to emulate him in covenant keeping, keeping the covenant of the Lord, they become like him, they do what he does. And they inherit the same blessings as he does. Because ultimately, the whole goal is to lift them also to an exalted level, which is the level that he's on now. He's their paradigm. They can become like him in every respect if they will do what he does. If they'll keep the same law that he does. Verse 13, Shout for joy, O heavens, celebrate, O earth, burst into song, O mountains. It's a worldwide event, a universal event. It's cause for rejoicing. It's a song of salvation. The Lord is comforting his people, showing compassion for his afflicted. His people, his covenant people, is parallel here with his afflicted. They first go through a stage of affliction, which comes about as a result of covenant breaking in the past. Their covenant breaking has brought about a state of curse, a fallen state. Fallen meaning from an exalted state to a lesser state. When Israel was exiled anciently, for example, they fell. Then they must suffer the curses of the covenant for a time until that price has been paid. And then, if they repent, like Abraham, they can turn it around for themselves, bring about a reversal of their circumstances. From one of covenant curse in the days of Abraham, from an idolatrous lifestyle into which he was born, he turned it around and brought about a blessed state for himself and succeeding generations. And that is the Lord comforting That idea goes back to chapter 40, verses 1 and 2, which is cross-referenced there, which says, Comfort and give solace to my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Announce to her that she has served her term. Her guilt has been expiated. 
She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. But now it's over. It's like a term of pregnancy. It comes to an end and there is new birth. All the curses have been paid off. The guilt has been expiated. She has served her term. Verse 14. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Kind of like the servant, right? He was wondering why he wasn't getting anywhere. And in his affliction, it seemed like the Lord forsook him too. That's the test. But God does not forget. He keeps saying over and over that he does not forget. Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her suckling infant or feel no compassion for the child of her womb? Which is what Israel is. We already covered that, that God was actually the literal father of his people. Though these shall forget, I will not forget you. A mortal woman may forget the child of her womb, but not God. See, I have engraved you on my palms. I have sealed you to be continually before me. How did he seal them on his palms? Through the piercing of his hands and feet. And those marks remain with him forever after as a reminder of his people for whom he suffered. He sealed them before him. Zion's test is to be faithful as a servant was faithful through that ordeal of seemingly being forgotten and forsaken, being in a situation of covenant curse, being afflicted with all manner of oppressions, the hands of those in authority, as it says, and also the whole Babylon social structure. It's oppressive to the Lord's people. They're showing no mercy and so forth. Verse 17, Your sons shall hasten your ravagers away. Those who ruined you shall depart from you. Lift up your eyes and look around you. With one accord they gather and come to you. As surely as I live, says the Lord, you shall adorn yourself with them all as with jewels. Bind them on you as does a bride. Your sons, first of all, means covenant blessing. It also implies a promised land. People gather and come to you where you already are. And the lands of inheritance that are given, that the servant apportions, and he restores the promised land, implies covenant blessing. Land and offspring are the two fundamental blessings of the covenant. Instead of being scattered, now they gather home. Instead of being in a state of bondage, now they're free. Instead of being weak and under others' subjection, now they are the ones who are able to subject others. Your son shall hasten your ravagers away. Those who ruined you shall depart from you. Kind of a takeover by alien or unfriendly powers who lorded over you and destroyed your land. Now you return and you have power over them. You shall adorn yourself with them all, those who return, that is, as with jewels. Jewels being a precious stone signifying an elect posterity. And the same imagery is used by Malachi when he says, Then those who feared the Lord spake often one with another. And the book of remembrance was written of the things that they spoke. He says, These will I make my jewels when he comes. He says, Then you will discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him who serves God and him who does not serve him. The righteous meaning those who serve him who are the jewels. And bind them on you as does a bride. Here we begin to see bride and bridegroom imagery creeping in. That return of the elect, posterity of the Lord's people, 
implies again a reversal of their circumstances. It's a win-win situation for both those at home and those abroad. It implies there are already some who are at home, who are already there, who can welcome those who return from abroad. And those who are abroad are glad to come because they were in a situation of bondage out there. Those who were at home were oppressed and thought they were the only ones. Verse 19, For your ruins and ravaged places and your land laid waste by the king of Assyria shall now be too small for your inhabitants despite the departure of your devourers. The devourers or the oppressors were thrown out, the ravagers got rid of, and now in that promised land you're multiplying and people are returning so much that the original promised land is too small. So then what do you do? You spread abroad. Verse 20, The children born during the time of your bereavement, when you were alone, when you thought you were alone, when Israel was in exile, when you were not really part of a people of God, outcasts in society perhaps, shall yet say in your ears, This place is too cramped for us. Give us place to settle. Verse 21, And you will say to yourself, Who bore me these while I was bereaved and barren? I was exiled, banished. By whom were these reared? When I was left to myself, where were they? I guess everybody might say that about themselves in those days who are people of God. who have scattered and peeled all over the world. Little pockets here and little pockets there. It's not like it used to be when they were all one people, one language and one nation of God and had prophets and righteous kings. So they went through a stage of bereavement and barrenness, which is exactly what Babylon now inherits, as we saw. She's widowed and bereaved of children, while these get their children back. And there's more children than anticipated. Because out there in exile, people were multiplying. And at some point, when God brings them home and makes them one nation again, in the promised land, there will be many of them, millions of them. This, then, is the reversal of the curse of exile. Thus says my Lord Jehovah, I will lift up my hand to the nations, raise my ensign to the peoples, and they will bring your sons in their bosoms and carry your daughters on their shoulders. So at the time of the Lord's servant, who is the hand and the ensign, as we saw in chapter 11, and this is very much like chapter 11, verses 10 through 12, at that time will the gathering take place. Chapter 11, verse 10 says, The sprig of Jesse, who stands for an ensign to the peoples, shall be sought by the nations. That day my Lord will again raise his hand to reclaim the remnant of his people, those who shall be left out of Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamat, and the Isles of the Sea. He will raise the ensign to the nations and assemble the exiled of Israel. He will gather the scattered of Judah from the four directions of the earth. That's the same idea here, and that's the mission of the Lord's servant who is to restore Jacob again to him, who is sent as a light to the nations, a covenant of the peoples. And when that hand is lifted up, when that ensign is raised, that rallying standard, then the nations will bring their sons in their bosoms and carry their daughters on their shoulders. Who will? The Gentiles will. Who are these Gentiles? Well, particularly the kings and queens of the Gentiles. As it says in verse 23, kings shall be your foster fathers, Queens are nursing mothers, and they will be the ones who will bring about this restorative and gathering work. We might ask ourselves, who are these kings and queens of the Gentiles? Are they political kings and queens of the Gentiles? 
Are they the ones who are doing this gathering? Are they even interested? Most of the time, they simply oppose the gathering of the Lord's people. So these kings and queens of the Gentiles will be special ones. The mission of these kings and queens will be to be saviors of those who are scattered of the house of Israel. And not just the men, but the women too will be involved in that missionary work. They will bow down before you, their faces to the ground. They will lick the dust of your feet. Then shall you know that I am the Lord, and that they who hope in me are not disappointed. Who will lick the dust of their feet? The kings and queens of the Gentiles, the ones who are foster fathers and mothers, the ones who are bringing them from exile? Surely not. There's no indication that they're the ones. They're honorable people. Why would they bow down and lick the dust? In Isaiah, only the wicked bow down before the people of God. That is really a covenant curse. Those who are part of the restoration would not be the ones under a covenant curse. They would be in a situation of covenant blessing, which would enable them to do that work. Those who are under a covenant curse can't do anything of themselves. Then shall you know that I am the Lord, because you'll know the Lord. Isaiah makes clear that his people will know him in that day. That they who hope in me are not disappointed. And that is the test. Again, those who wait for the Lord, those who hope in the Lord, that's the servant's test. That's Israel's test. Chapter 40, verse 31, makes clear that that leads to an exalted state, passing the test of hoping and waiting for the Lord during times of extreme trial. But they who hope in the Lord shall be renewed in strength. They shall ascend as on eagle's wings. They shall run without worrying. They shall walk and not faint. So those who hope in the Lord can receive the same exaltation or the same empowered state, strengthened state, as the servant himself. All the way through, there is this motif of waiting for the Lord. And the going gets rough. You still hope, you still trust, you still believe, you still have faith. Verse 24, Can the warrior's spoil be taken from him, or the tyrant's captives escape free? The one who spoils in the book of Isaiah, who is the tyrant and the warrior, the wicked warrior, of course, is the king of Assyria. And he takes the world captive. He conquers the whole world, destroys most of it, and takes many captives, as we've already seen. And people say, well, who can stand up against him? There are those who say that, but God is more powerful than them all, of course, than this tyrant. The Lord says in verse 25, Thus says the Lord, The warrior's spoil shall indeed be taken from him, and the tyrant's captives escape free. Yes, he may take them captive. He will take some captive. Not the elect. Not those who go in the exodus. Not the precious category, but maybe the semi-precious category. Not the silver, the gold, or the jewels. But the others who remain on a lower level will get their act together at some point. The king of Assyria spoils the whole world, as we saw in chapter 14. He raids it, so to speak, strips it of all the spoil. And when he himself is destroyed, what happens to the spoil? The same is what happened when the Assyrians seized Jerusalem in the days of King Hezekiah, and the angel of the Lord smote them with a plague. One night they all died, and these soldiers, warriors, were carrying upon their persons all the spoils of the whole world that they had conquered, and the Israelites went and helped themselves to those spoils. The warrior's spoil shall indeed be taken from him in that way, and the tyrant's captives escape free. Who lets them free? 
the servant does. Because after the king of Assyria is destroyed, or at the time he's being destroyed, the servant is reconquering the world on behalf of the Lord. The tyrant captures the whole world or conquers it, and then the servant reconquers it back, this time for the Lord. The tyrant does away with the borders of nations, and the servant, in reconquering the world, makes the earth the Lord's. He consecrates the whole world to the Lord himself. I myself will contend with your contenders, and I will deliver your children. God will be there. Remember, he's also a warrior, as we saw. He's the paradigm of a warrior. He will deliver his children, or Zion's children. Verse 26, I will feed your oppressors with their own flesh. They shall become drunk with their own blood as with wine. And all flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, that your Redeemer is the valiant one of Jacob. This is the great reversal of their circumstances, reversal of circumstances of the wicked, who were in positions of power and used their power to oppress, and now they will be drunk with their own blood. There we have several of the titles of the Lord. Savior, Redeemer, Valiant One of Jacob. And that, like the Holy One of Israel, or the Holy One of Jacob, is a title that we should emulate. Those who are saved are like him, in the sense that they're holy and they're valiant. Verse 